I uh, want to talk with you a little bit this morning about making a home and a little bit, at least from my own experience, of how a home is made. Um, most of you know, I, you know my dad was out of my life from the time I was about seven, and uh, I had a lot of fears. Oh, by the way, my mom and my brother are here today. Uh, again, my mom and my brother up from Southern California. My brother's a pastor, too, so it's a bit of a, I always say it's kind of an illness in our family. I'm not quite sure what what draws us to it, but I, I'm sure it's the faithfulness of our mom uh, into our lives. But, you know, as a child, uh, for various reasons, I had a lot of fear in my life, uh, fear I couldn't explain, um, but I'd go to bed at night, and there was just always uh, just a lot of anxiety, I think, in, in some low-level ways. And uh, I remember as a kid, um, I used to hate sleeping in a dark room with my door closed. I always wanted the door open. Somehow that brought me some measure of comfort. And one of the things I loved hearing was my mom down the hallway in the kitchen, puttering in the kitchen. Now, I, I know now as an adult and as a parent myself, it wasn't puttering. It was cleaning up after kid children and doing dishes. And, uh, you know, long before there were mechanical dishwashers, at least in our home, which I've grown to be convinced that's one of God's great gifts to the world, is mechanical dishwashers. Can I get a witness? Amen. <laughs> So she'd be out in the kitchen puttering, and it would just bring such great comfort. It almost became like a soothing lullaby to me. Not because there's somebody active, not because whatever else was going on. It's just the fact that I knew that my mom was in the house, and because she was there with me, that I was okay. And, you know, for me, that's, that's stuck with me for so long because I know now that that a home really is partly, at least majorly, part of the relationships that are built within there. Um, it's not always the functions of things, and, uh, but it's the relationships that we have. And that's part of why making a home in a church like this becomes so important and so instrumental in so many of our lives because uh, it's the relationships that God provides that makes life here together what it's intended to be. Well, we can't find other places because other places are not the church. God has not called other people together like he has the church to be the church and to be there for each other and to make a home for each other. And we're talking today about what does it mean to make a home with Jesus Christ for your own heart as an individual and then as a community of faith to be in a daily relationship with him, a relationship that's real and one that's personal. And one that's persistent and consistent and constant even. We're talking about what Jesus says in John chapter 15. I invite you to open your Bibles there. John chapter 15. One of my all-time favorite passages of the scripture when Jesus describes the vine and the branches. Now, I'm no botanist, but uh, those who do know some things about plants and I read about, they, they tell me when you take a vine and and you try to graft on a new branch onto the vine, something significant happens, that the branch that you're grafting on will shoot out little little shoots, little things seeking to connect somewhere, and once you make a space on the vine for that branch to be connected, you tie it up and hold it in place, it doesn't take long before that, that stem to grab hold of that branch, and the two become intertwined and interwoven together, and that branch, if that doesn't happen, that branch will die. It will atrophy 
Because it's not getting the nutrition and the nourishment and the life sustenance that it needs. But that's what the vine provides. You see, the branch gets grafted in there, and it's, it's, a, it's a process of enmeshment that God does with us when Jesus describes that he himself is the vine, and that you and I are the branches. We get grafted into his family, because apart from him, we really can do nothing of spiritual significance, certainly with the living God. And so I want to read together with you a few verses out of John chapter 15, Jesus speaking, he says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, Because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and to bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Let me say it again. This is my command. Say it with me. Love each other. Love each other. The importance of the life-sustaining relationship of abiding, of remaining, of resting, of building your life in the person of Jesus himself. Part of what we do, Jesus says, to make that happen, of having the branch of your life grafted into the vine of his life, is allowing the Word of God to dwell in you. In verse 3, he says, You are already clean because of the Word I have spoken to you. Later on, he would say, If uh, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. And he talks about the importance of that. You know, Israel in the Old Testament had problems in different seasons of trusting God and taking Him at His Word. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21 
We find where uh, they had uh, gone off into exile and God was uh, describing the, the process that happened. He says, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Then he goes on describing uh, an old word. I, I haven't heard much in church these days, but I used to hear it as a boy, uh, the old word backsliding. Where you were once in this place and somehow you slid backwards to a place you shouldn't be, to a place I've not prepared for you, a place I've not called you to be. And so he's calling them to attention and Jesus is laying out, this is how you have the life-sustaining reality of my very presence in you, with you, around you, under you. He would say it a different way in Matthew 7. He would say the foolish person takes other philosophies of the world and they build their life and they trust in those philosophies, but it's like sand. And if you know anything about building a sandcastle, you know it doesn't take much of a wave to wash it away because it's not solid, it's not certain, it's not been proven But Jesus is the one who is certain. He has been proven. He is the one who provides the stability of life that you and I so desperately need. And he says, if you would come to me and build your life upon me as the rock, as the solid foundation of your life. And now he teams that and he says, if you will then come regularly and find your nourishment in me, that is what real life, that is what good life is all about. It's not the size of a home or the depth and immensity of a bank account or the type of vacation you're able to take every year. That's not good living. Those might be pleasantries and joy-filled realities of life. But at the end of the day, what lasts and what is of substance is the personal relationship that Christ Jesus calls us to. It's kind of like the vine is a little like... um, the, uh, the master-apprentice analogy or a, um, a mentor and a protege, even a parent-child, it's sort of the absorption. You know, the branch, when it's grafted into the vine, it just begins to absorb out of the vine the life and the nutrition that it needs to live and to live vibrantly, right? So that's what Jesus is talking about. It's about learning to absorb God's life into your very own. I mentioned my brothers here, and... You know, it's so interesting, the significant relationships in, in our lives and how they impact us, sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes in ways when we're young, they sort of find, they, they bubble up to the top when we're a little older. We begin to appreciate the value of, of another person's life rubbing on ours. I have uh, been the benefit of, of Bruce being like a father figure to me in many ways. Uh, he's about four and a half years older, but I think he's in reality probably 20 years older in maturity um, in wisdom, and it's kind of annoying sometimes, but, you know, hey, I, I just kind of roll with it. Um, but uh, he sometimes just throw away comments, but they stuck to my soul, and they've given shape to the way I see my life and the way God has worked in my life. He used to tell me back when I was in high school, wondering what in the world would I ever do with my life? You know, would I find a job that would support me or could I find success somewhere? And I just had no idea. So flummoxed about what I would become and do. And he said, you know what, just just do what you love and what you're good at. And the financial things will come as they're needed. 
And so I've trusted that along the way. I've never really worried too much about money, and I've just trusted God that he'll provide as, as he sees fit in his good timing. And I could tell you a half dozen stories. If you want to stick around later, I'll share them with you about how I've seen God be faithful to himself and his promises to provide at just the right time. You know, he, I have a little bit of, of cynical edge to me at times. Um, do you? Just toward other people? Kind of distrustful, maybe? Kind of like, what are you telling me? And are you really serious what you're saying right now? And kind of just sort of trying to measure people up. Sometimes there, there could be a little aspect of that in me. But, you know, not Bruce. Yeah, that's his name. It's Bruce. That's been confusing for our family. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Bruce and Bryce. But, you know, one of the things Bruce taught, just said one day, just the way that he chose to approach relationships with other people. He said, you know, Bryce, he said, I just trust people. I choose to trust people until they give me a reason not to. I thought, wow, that's pretty simple. I think I could try to approach other people that way. And it has so altered the way that I, uh, I meet people, the way that I try to greet them anyway, the way that I try to interact with them, even on a, a, an initial interaction, just to trust people until they give you a reason not to. I like that. That's really stuck with me. I, I remember in high school struggling. I was about 16 years old, and all of a sudden I'd come head on into a really dry spiritual season of my life. And I'd open the Bible, and it was just like, I'm, just, I'm not even sensing God speaking to me. I'd pray, and it just felt like the prayers were somehow going about five feet, bouncing back, and not going anywhere of, of issue. And I just didn't feel that God was very present or close to me. And you know what he said? He said, you know, Bryce, when, when you're in spiritually dry times, you just keep doing what you know you're supposed to do. You keep reading your Bible, and you keep praying. Because God has given us those as our fundamental disciplines. And if we just keep at them, if God is with you. You may not sense his presence every every moment, all the time, but he's there. And you just keep doing what you're supposed to do. You keep reading your Bible and you keep praying. And sure enough, the season will change. And I've reflected on that uh, so often and reflecting in Psalm 1 about the tree planted by streams of water bearing its fruit in its own season and its leaf never withering. You know, he, uh, he also taught me a very significant reality about my family and my relationship to Susan. And it's helped me so much as I went, uh, graduated seminary, and he said once to me, uh, he said, you know, God has called me, you know, relationally, God has called him first in a relationship to God. But when it comes to other relationships in the earthly realm, he said for him that God had called him first to his wife and his family, and secondly, subsequently to any particular ministry. First to God, but then next to the family, to his relationship with his wife and uh, and all of that. And that has been so helpful to me in reminding me of how I've established priorities for my own life. First with God, and then my first sphere of ministry. If I think if I'm going to be successful as a pastor here in this church, that I have to be able to minister first to my wife and my children, and I can't neglect that, as tempting as that might be at times, and as demanding as a role like this might be. But his word to me has been so helpful. Just... Many examples of what it is to just sort of absorb wisdom from another person and how it shapes our living. I hope you have a person like that in your life or have had maybe multiple people in your life. But when Jesus talks about him being the vine and we are the branches that are grafted into that vine, it is about us absorbing the life-giving reality of the person of Jesus in our lives. Jerry, you've got a book right beside you. I got all confused this morning. 
One of my very favorite devotional books of all time. It's one of my smallest books, but it's so easy to find on my bookshelf because I always know where it is. It's uh, titled Praying with the Anabaptists. And uh, one of the, the things, they, I, I come back to this over and over again in different seasons of my life. It's been so helpful just in giving me some handles for uh, expressing my spiritual life. Oh boy. It says, Jesus calls us to embrace the whole of his message Not only his spoken words, but also his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus himself is the message, the word made flesh. The more completely we allow God's word to abide in us, God's thoughts becoming our thoughts, God's desires becoming our desires, God's dreams becoming our dreams, the more we will experience the reality of Jesus' promise. Ask for whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. Through us, God's will shall be done. And then they go on giving some examples of, of how to make uh, abiding God, God's word, of uh, hiding it in your heart. They say, if that's something you struggle with, pray and ask God to give you a hunger to read the Bible. You know, if you're like me, you're going to leave here in about 30 minutes. And you're going to be hungry and thinking about what is for lunch. And that's going to be something that comes back again probably later today and again tomorrow. You'll have these hunger pains that come over you every day probably. And what God would have us do and to understand is that we ought to have a longing and a desire to open his word and to enjoy the time and the opportunity that we have to be with him. To feast on his word. And if you're in a season of your life where that's not a hunger or a desire or an inclination even, you can ask God. That's a prayer I've prayed in different seasons. I've prayed it daily. God, give me a renewed hunger to desire your word, to long for it, to miss it when I'm not regularly uh, dining with you and feasting upon you. And then not only do we can we pray for a hunger for his word, it's so important in our day and age to make time to actually meet with God through the scripture and in prayer that is such a critical element that you have to figure out for yourself. But it has to come with a desire to do, to meet with God. You start small. If this is not a practice you've done, you don't start with saying, every day I'm going to read the entire Gospel of Matthew every day. That's probably not a great starting point. But start small. Start with a realistic step forward. And be patient. Be patient with yourself. Be patient if you open the Scripture and your heart isn't... Uh, deeply stirred on any particular day. Be patient. And I would also encourage you to speak the word, speak scripture into your prayers, into your personal prayer life. Take the, take the verses that you're reading and weave those into the prayers that you're praying for your family, for your job, for your children, for your parents. Whatever the prayers you're praying that day, take the scripture and begin to weave it into your prayers because that helps anchor it it's like a fish hook into your heart. It helps stick it into your heart so it stays there. It's anchored deeply in you. That's my encouragement. So how do we make our home in Jesus? One, we let God's word dwell in us. Number two, out of verse 10, is a word every child loves to hear. Obedience. <laughs> how about every adult? Adults, do you like to hear the word obey? You like to be told to obey. Eh, a lot of us don't, do we? Because we don't trust the people that, we're ask, that are asking us to obey, right? Verse 10, Jesus says, If you obey my commands, 
you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. So if we are to make our home in Jesus, we need to be people who are obedient seekers. When I was, I was blessed in high school with a really great youth ministry, and it put a lot of foundational pieces in my life. I remember at a particular youth camp, we were given a definition that I still use with my own children and, um, and for myself. So this isn't just for children. But uh, in our study, I was learning what does it mean every day to begin to practice for myself as a teenager, a daily reading of the Bible and prayer. And at this camp, we were told and encouraged to think about obedience with three, three little nuggets. You want to hear them? Number one, obedience is doing what you're told to do. Right? You have to have clarity about what you've been told to do. So doing what you're told to do, there has to be also a willingness to follow through. So that's number one. Number two is do it when you're told to do it. So do what you're told when you're told to do it. It's not waiting for tomorrow or next week. You sense God's moving in your life as best you can. Do it at the first opportunity that you can. So number three, you want to hear this? This is the, the kicker. You ready? Do what you're told to do when you're told to do it with the right heart attitude. Wow. Now it just got real. <laughs> right? Because I know as a child myself and as children myself, having children, that often we may know what we're supposed to do. We may be willing to do it right now. But what's the attitude of our heart? <laughs> Is that a good heart attitude? I would say no. And how often do we respond to God in the same way? God will say, you're moving up on a, a transition in your life. This is something new and that I'm working in. You need to follow and to do what I'm laying out for you to do. You need to trust me along the way. You need to be obedient when things come. Now, I've talked about my brother. Can you give me a couple other minutes? <clears throat> my brother, um, Bruce, I love you, man. But he's here, and I've got to talk about him. So, you know, being the loving brother he was, you know, and as boys, you know, as we got into our teenage years, as boys, we used to love to compare our scars to other boys, right? And not only is it just seeing who had the biggest, most gnarly scar somewhere, but it was also the story behind it, right? This is how I got this scar. Let me tell you what we're really saying, what boys are saying, is let me tell you how stupid I was to do this particular activity that led to this scar. I nearly lost my arm or whatever it is, right? So that, that's the fun of boys. But uh, in the process of creating my scars, I would have bruises on my body. I'd have cuts and scratches, and they would have scabs. And poor Bruce, he really is one of the most gentle people I've ever met. But toward his little brother, not always so. He would come over, and he, he would put on this really gentle, soft face and a, a really soft voice. And he'd walk up to me, and he'd see a big bruise on my thigh or a scab on my forearm. And he'd say, oh, Bryce, that must have really hurt. And then you know what he'd do. He'd jab the bruise. <laughs> or he'd take it, he'd rip my scab off. And, and I don't know why I continue to think the next time when he approaches me so genteel that this is going to be different. I don't, that tells you more about me and how slow a learner I am. But that's not the kind of love we're talking about. That, that is a type of love. That's brotherly love. That's, that's a, I'm going to hurt you because I love you. Uh, but we're talking about the idea of, of obedience. And 
they, to be obedient the Lord to the Lord, we are told that if we are to be obedient, we must learn to love each other. This is my command. What? Love each other. If you're going to be obedient, a demonstration of your obedience to the Lord is your choice to love, to love others. It's not always something you feel. You're not always going to feel warm and fuzzy. Right? It's not always that. It can be that. We hope it is. But in spite of that, loving others is a choice that we make. It's a, an intention that we make. It's following the pattern of Jesus. Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you need to go and love each other. So how has Jesus loved us? Well, how do we count the ways? He's loved us unconditionally. You need to love others unconditionally. And when I point to you, I'm talking to me too. Jesus loves us patiently. We need to be patient with other people in our love. Jesus has loved us persistently. We need to be persistent. He's loved us with gentleness. He's loved us with tough-mindedness at times. You know, a good father doesn't let his children get away with stuff, right? A good father disciplines his children, so there's toughness to the love. That's love. There's toughness there. It has to be, or else it's not love. Jesus loves us with an encouraging, a strengthening love. He loves us with an exhorting love. He's not going to let you keep going out and making the same mistakes without pointing it out to you and letting you make choices that are different and saying this is the better way. It's an action-oriented love. You know, you really do spell love, V-E-R-B, right? It's a verb. It's something that's done. It's something that's chosen, and it's action-oriented. That's what love is. Jesus didn't just talk about love in heaven. He left heaven and took on flesh. So that he could go and die on a cross to take your sin upon himself. It's an action-oriented love. He made a choice and demonstrated it with his action. And he says, the same way that I have loved you, you need to now go and love one another. He would even say the full measure of loving others is laying down your life for the friends. So what are some of the results? Real quickly. The results of making your home in Christ. Number one is pruning. In verse 2, it says that he cuts off every branch in me. So Jesus speaking, the gardener, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Let me ask you a question. Is the pruning done so that you can be in pain? No. Does God come and prune your life so that your life is more painful? No, it's so that your life is more fruitful. Does God come and prune your life or a church's ministry so that we can be in grief, so that you can have more grieving? No, it's so that the ministry of a church can be even more fruitful. You see, the pruning, the pruning is an acknowledgement that there has been fruit in a season of ministry. Fruit from your hands engaged in ministry. Fruit from ministries that may have significance in the life of a church for years, maybe decades. And the pruning process is partly God's way of honoring that and saying, this, this has, has worked marvelously and borne great fruit for its intended season. But now we're entering a new season. And the, the constant and quiet gardener enters the garden of a church or the garden of your life and heart. And he'll come and he'll say, this has been fruitful for this season, amen. But now it's time to prune. Does the pruning feel good? No, not always. 
They can lead us into some grieving times because of the great memories and the history and the way that we've seen God at work. But is the pruning necessary? Yeah, a good gardener knows it is. Without good pruning, the vine goes wild and the product of what it is becomes less and it's not what it's intended to be. So a good gardener comes, takes a fruitful vine, prunes it so that in the next season it will be even more fruitful. Maybe you have lost a job or are preparing to lose a job that you have loved and you're entering into a season where God is pruning you. We're in the process of several people in this church that have served for decades in particular ministries. Ann Smith is one who has uh, done and overseen the decorating of the church and Christmas season and the flower ministry and all sorts of ways. She'll be wrapping up her great service in just a few weeks. We've already been recognizing Carol and her team who have worked so tirelessly on Wednesday nights and other times of receptions to uh, serve the church in so many ways. And now God is taking and we build upon the previous successes as a church so that we hopefully are moving into a season of even more fruitful ministry, whatever those ministries are. And so I hope with me that you are as hopeful. Yeah, there's some sadness in a church transition where some maybe things that have borne great fruit, their season perhaps is complete, and there's new things that God would want to do. And I think as a church, we have to be ready and welcoming and looking for those moments and prepared for them as God would provide for us. Also, there's joy, verse 11, one of my favorite verses. Jesus says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete do you want complete joy oh it's abiding in the vine it's resting in jesus it's making your home in him i've experienced seasons of ministry where laughter would not flow out of my mouth because there was no song in my heart and i know those seasons i know when they're sad or when you feel joyless and you feel like you're just in a season, you're just kind of continuing on day after day, week after week. You're being as faithful as you can, but this measure of joy doesn't seem to be there. I think this too is something you can pray about, that God would renew your joy for him. This is joy. It's not happiness, not in the sense that it, it's overly affected by all the circumstances. This is joy that's built upon solid foundation of Christ in you. So that when the storms of life come or the shifts and adjustments, transitions of your life come, there can still be joy because you trust the one who is the joy giver. You trust the gardener who is constant and present and loves you and loves this church enough to prune us and to prepare us with joy for a future season of ministry. And then finally, what is the benefit of being abiding in Jesus? It's friendship with him. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I have made known to you. I want you to know, friend, if you have given your life and heart to the Lord Jesus, that he calls you a friend because you are a trusted confidant of the Savior. I want you to hear that again, because there's real intimacy in this image of vine and branch being grafted in. 
because you are no longer just merely a servant. Jesus also calls you a friend because you're a trusted confidant in whom he trusts and gives trustworthy jobs and things to do. He opens his life to you. Isn't that so good? Amen. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for this reminder that you are a vine and we are the branches. Thank you that we have seen this wonderful baptism and the reminder that you still make new life and you call us to new life. We love you because you have first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.